Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hello and welcome to Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. I am your host, Adam Conover. You might also know me as the host of the true TV show, Adam Ruins Everything. And guess what? That show is coming back. We have all new episodes of Adam Ruins Everything starting July 11th at 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central at True TV. And if you want to bone up, in the meantime, you can find clips and full episodes at truetv.com slash Adam Ruins Everything and the Watch True TV app. But hey, that's the TV show. On this show, the podcast you're listening to right now, I talk to researchers, academics, journalists, and experts about the work they do and why it is so gosh darn important. We talk to all those people doing incredible work all over the world, finding out hidden knowledge, and we bring it to you, people who have never heard it before and are going to have your minds blown by it. Today's guest is Professor Jackie Stevens. Jackie was on our TV show, Adam Ruins Immigration, where she discussed our country's crazy immigration court system. And guys, whether or not you've seen this episode, you need to know about immigration courts in America. It is such, look, immigration is obviously such a hot topic, but something almost nobody talks about, you won't see people talk about it on CNN or on you won't see politicians talk about it in speeches is the part of our criminal justice system that determines whether people get to stay or have to leave the country is completely bonkers. We're going to get into it in this podcast, but let me tell you, it is like this bizarre mirror universe justice system where every throw out everything you think you know about the criminal justice system. None of it applies in how we determine who gets deported and who doesn't. And I don't care what political persuasion you are. I don't care who you're voted for. I guarantee your jaw is going to be on the floor after you listen to this interview because the way this system operates is totally bananas. So let's get to it. Jackie is a professor at Northwestern University where she focuses on political theory, law, and politics. We're so excited to have her join us today from Chicago. Let's get to the interview. Well, Jackie, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, it's, I'm very happy to train you. And we spoke to you on the on the TV show so briefly about this topic. I'm really happy to talk about it in a in a wider format because you know for our immigration episode last year we did we actually in our research for that segment we we spoke to uh, a uh, an immigration judge who was sort of a representative for a, a, a group of immigration ju- judges. And uh, she spoke about she told us how, look, the strangest thing about this system is that it's called a court, but it's not under the, uh, the you know, that branch. Right. It's not under the judicial branch That's right. of of the United States government. You know, there's a legislative branch. There's the judicial branch. So you imagine, OK, an immigration court, that's going to be part of the judicial branch. It's actually part of the executive branch. It's uh, the, These immigration courts are part of the Department of Justice. So they serve at the attorney general and president's. 
uh, uh, pleasure, correct? That's absolutely correct. And so, you know, unlike um, when you're calling the judicial or Article Three courts, where the judges are appointed for life, they have independence, um, nobody, you know, you, they might have their decisions overturned, but if they get something wrong, they won't be fired or they can't be directed to implement a policy in a particular way. And that's all in contrast with um, the procedures in place for these immigration judges, who, by the way, used to be called special inquiry officers. Wow. And and, and so that name was changed um, in, in the, the, the 1970s, but there was no underlying change in the function. So the Executive Office of Immigration Review just issued a regulation. They said, oh, we don't have to have this out for public review or anything because we're not changing any of the underlying functions huh. associated with the office. So, so they say, hey, we'll just call ourselves judges, but we won't act any more like judges than we were before. <laughs> That's absolutely right. And they did the same thing in changing what are called reviews or um, proceedings to calling these courts. And so that also was part of a housekeeping name change in the 1990s. So they figured, OK, we'll invent this title of immigration judges. Immigration judges must work in courts. So we'll just invent this name, courts. <laughs> And, the, and these are the places that you go. You go before these, quote, judges and, and to these courts. Anyone who is, uh, what, picked up by ICE, uh, by by Immigration Customs Enforcement, um, uh, you know, who, what, is, uh, uh, you know, suspected of, of being in the country illegally, or, or who, who else? What types of people are sucked up into this system? Okay, so um, immigration courts are purely civil proceedings. So nobody who is before an immigration judge um, is being accused in that context of committing any crime or the penalty of deportation isn't associated with a criminal proceeding. So uh-huh. you might be in there because you, you know, um, violated a, a law that's associated with deportation, but you've already had that worked out before you end up in an immigration court on that basis. Um, and so you've either served your time or uh, there's been you know some other result um, from that criminal proceeding. The only people, the only um, uh, consequence of an immigration proceeding is uh, either that you're allowed to remain in the country with legal authorization or you're deported. And because of that, uh, there are no attorneys that you um, have if you cannot afford to hire one for yourself. Oh. And there's, a num- there's no jury. Um, there's a number of other really important absences of due process. And so, so, this is, you, so go so ahead. So these people are are these these folks are uh, when they're in this immigration court, they're not accused of a crime. They're it, it's a civil case where okay, the decision is just whether they can remain in the country or they have to leave. It's so yeah, it's because like, the end. Yeah, of course, it's not a, a criminal matter because at the end you don't go to jail. They just you you're made to leave the country. Yeah, no, that's right. That's right. So the people you asked, going back to your question, you know, who ends up in an immigration court? And it's anybody who's accused of violating civil immigration laws. So again, these are people who are accused. They, 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 uh, some of them perhaps, uh, violated this civil law and perhaps some of them didn't. And the sort of the job of the court is to determine uh, which is which, who, who can stay and who can go. But they don't provide, they don't provide folks with, uh, with defense. That's correct. That's that's such a bizarre part of it because that is uh, uh, such a you know foundational. This part of Americans Americans folk understanding of the law is that if you're in this sort of situation, you're going to uh, be provided with a defense attorney. 
Right. Well, again, that's what's so confusing because, you know, they have all of the um, appearances of being a court. And so people, you know, who are they're called respondents and not defendants. And they find themselves in that environment and they think, oh, you know, just like other courts, I'm going to get a public defender or somebody else to help me with my case. And of course, that's not available in these proceedings. Wow. This is what I'm talking about, about about it being this sort of like weird mirror universe justice system where it at first the first time you hear about it, you're like, OK, I think I know what that is. And then every detail you hear is slightly just slightly off from what you expect in a way that that isn't really to anyone's benefit. Right. And, you know, also to maybe go into the weeds a little bit, but um, hopefully help out, you know, you and the people listening to this. Um, there is another alternative to these kinds of proceedings, and those would be courts that are run under the Administrative Procedures Act. And that's an act that allows agencies to set up um, independent tribunals that have attorneys who are hired and controlled under um, the civil service and therefore independent of the agency. So, for instance, the Social Security Administration has these kinds of courts. And if you appeal a social security benefit or denial, you'll end up there. And you don't have to worry that the person ruling on your case is reporting to the head of the social security agency, right? Um, and, and what happened is that in 1950, uh, the Supreme Court actually told the immigration hearing um, officers at that um, time, you know what, this deportation order is invalid because the immig- they weren't called even courts at that point, but these hearings aren't held um, under the Administrative Procedures Act, which had been passed four years earlier. Mm. And, <laughs> and so one possibility would have been that the Department of Justice could have said, oh, wow, you're right, like we need to fix this. But instead what they did is they went to Congress and with that same year, um, based strictly on the costs that would be associated with bringing up these hearings to the standards of due process expected by the Supreme Court, um, obtained from the appropriations hearing a special order that um, that, that said that they did not have to have hearings under the Administration Procedures Act. <laughs> they got a waiver. Act. So they got a waiver. And then in 1952, they, you know, they again didn't um, revisit that. And so that's why these proceedings um, don't have th- – th- they lack not only protections of Article Three courts, but also the protections that you know, people who are just going for veterans benefits or any other benefits before other agencies have under the Administrative Procedures Act. So, so there is an alternative – uh, like uh, when other government agencies need to set up sort of a quasi judicial body like this, they, they have a way to do it that's uh, ensures that, you know, you're not just sort of the same agency that's bringing you to court isn't the same one trying and convicting you and, and you have a little bit more protection. And just in this case, what that many years ago, a couple decades ago, the the Justice Department figured out a workaround so they don't use this better system. They've got this sort of crazy one. That's absolutely correct. And and actually, it's even more um, bizarre than that because the DOJ did actually set up a special um, administrative agency or uh, administrative law judge review within EOR, the Executive Office of Immigration Review, for employment cases. So if you're an employer and you're accused of violating some employment um, you know, clause of the Immigration Act, then you actually do have redress if you're a U.S. employer through um, wow. this ad- administrative process, the administration, the administrative law judges as opposed to administrative judges is the difference in the nomenclature. And so, you know, they, they know what this looks like, and yet they've decided only to make that possibility available for U.S. employers, but not for all of the immigrants and even U.S. citizens who are potentially being deported. 
Wow. And so let's talk about that. The the number of U.S. citizens who are de- who are erroneously deported by this system. I think you said uh, uh, on our show that since 2003, uh, this system has erroneously deported something like 20,000 U.S. citizens. Well, it's detained or deported about 20,000 citizens. Uh-huh. And so I actually haven't done the math in the meantime, but, you know, it's in the magnitude of the thousands and um, who have been detained um, and or deported. And, uh, you know, the, the underlying uh, data for that um, or the percentage that I use is 1% of everybody who's detained um, has been, is a U.S. citizen and an additional one half of 1% of those who are um, deported are U.S. citizens. Well, I mean, that, so that is that to me is the most shocking part of all of this, because it, it's sort of it seems to me clear that it's the the grossest negligence and abdication of duty for the for the government or even goes beyond abdication of duty uh uh it's so contrary to the fundamental mission of the government to deport one of its own citizens sort of the whole the whole point of a government would be to not deport the people it represents from the not to say hey leave the country to to people who who uh, are citizens of the country it's you know it's one of those i look for those sort of bare truths that you know, I think anyone could get behind. I think anyone could get behind the uh, the idea that that is something to be avoided at all costs. Right, and you know, I, I think that um, what you're getting at is that there's the reversal of the intuition of innocent until proven guilty, and you know, it's that premise that led in the early '60s to the Supreme Court finding that defendants in criminal cases had the right to an assigned attorney if they could not afford one. So there's nothing in the Constitution, there's nothing in the Sixth Amendment that says, you know what, if you're accused of something, you get an attorney. But what happened is in the early 60s, um, this guy named Gideon um, said, you know what, Uh, dear judge, I'm innocent, but I don't have the education to prove this. Um, Please help me find an attorney so I can prove my innocence. And it was through that that the Southern Poverty Law Center represented him. And instead of saying this guy's innocent, they said his conviction isn't valid because he didn't have an attorney representing him during these proceedings. And it was on the basis of that argument that the Supreme Court reversed his conviction and set out this principle that everybody who is held under criminal laws has a right to an attorney um, at the government's expense if the person cannot afford one. And so what you're getting at is the fact that we don't have those protections right now for people who are in deportation proceedings. And so even though there are a persistent number and high number of people who are U.S. citizens, and we know this, um, who are detained without any legal authority, because ICE has no legal authority even for a second to hold someone who's a U.S. citizen in custody, um, there's no legal mechanism to pay for the government paying in order to um, help that person acquire the evidence to prove that they are, in fact, a U.S. citizen. Yeah. And so it, we, it seems like we need a sort of similar awakening as we had in the Gideon case uh, nationally uh, in the same way about this type of proceeding. Right. Well, and especially for people who are detained. I mean, you know, it's it's just as difficult to obtain evidence about your case of being a U.S. citizen to prove that as it would be to prove you're innocent in a criminal 
charge, right? And it's actually even more difficult because it requires a lot of, um, you know, investigative work on the part of the individual to go to different offices and obtain paperwork, not just about that, you know, person herself, but also going back generations to get documents on one's grandparents and mm-hmm. their grandparents um, because, you know, citizenship is something that can be acquired and people who are born abroad of U.S. citizen parents are automatically U.S. citizens by birth, you know, by operation of law. So uh-huh. those, pe- so it's like John McCain when he's born in the Panama military base, um, you know, when he comes back to the United States, he's not given a form to apply for a green card, right? Yes. Like he's just, and he doesn't have to apply for U.S. citizenship either. He's automatically a U.S. citizen. Um, but when you come back into the United States and your parents are of Mexican descent and you're born in Mexico, then often what happens is that the U.S. government has entered people in their databases as being, you know, as being either legal residents or entering illegally. And then those people have to, you know, kind of go through a number of hurdles in order to unwind the, the confusion that the government I has see. created. I see. That's so that's so interesting, because I mean, look, I, I first of all, I as a, you know, uh, a white American male born on Long Island, if you were to ask me, prove you're a citizen, I wouldn't be immediately sure how to do it. Like, I, right. I, I think there's maybe a, a hospital on Long Island I could call. Or I would call my mom and I would be like, do we have a birth certificate? Where Where, where is that? You know, I, 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 so it's hard. Enough, it would be hard enough for me, especially if I was, you know, held in the detention center. But yeah, if you're the, that's, that's, I never thought of it that way. If you're, if you were uh, the child of American parents, but who are of Mexican descent, who are say Spanish speaking, and then they are, yeah, they travel across the border to Mexico. You're, you're born there. And then you come back. I can see how, uh, you know, I see how, okay, legally you are an American citizen. You're the children of American parents. But, uh, yeah, the, the, it must be, it must look bureaucratically like so much more of a gray area, it must be so much more difficult to find that documentation. And I can also imagine how someone, you know, so uh, how does someone uh, end up in that situation? Are they just sort of swept up in some sort of immigration raid and they're going, I'm an American citizen and ICE is like, prove it. And they're, and now they have now they're in this situation where they have to prove it in this sort of strange immigration court. Well, yeah, I mean, something like that. Um, most of the people who end up in the, that situation are people who are um, young men who are have a short or too long prison sentence. And all of the data on people who are held in jails or prisons are reported to the Department of Justice under this program called the State Criminal Alien Assistance Program. And so either, you know, through secure communities or especially through this data sharing process, which um, I flag because even sanctuary cities participate in this, um, ICE will obtain this kind of data um, of somebody who's, quote, foreign born. But as we've just discussed, you can be foreign born and be a U.S. citizen. Right. Mm -hmm. But because this database is based on people who are foreign born, you're immediately flagged as somebody who's subject to detention. And so then what ICE does is they send people often undercover to jails or to prisons and they do these biographical interviews. And the people who um, ICE interviews in those timeframes, they they are told, oh, you know, they might be told, oh, this is someone who's here to talk about your parole or this is a legal worker. And they're not identified to people as ICE agents. So they don't even know that they should even be thinking about proving who they are or any kinds of claims of U.S. citizenship. They're just sort of someone's just going like, oh, hey, where'd you grow up? Like, uh, uh, what kind of school did you go to? What you know, what did your mom make you for breakfast? Uh, Okay, And then they go and file a report and say, I think this person's a citizen or not. 
Yeah, well, they write, file something and they say this person was born in, you know, Tijuana or whatever. Uh, and and then that's what gets them to an immigration court. And at that point, you know, they've already been locked up for a while and they just want to get out. So often people who have, you know, bona fide U.S. citizenship claims like Mark Little um, will agree to be deported because they don't want to stay in for the months or years it might take, which it does in these cases, to prove their claims. Wow. So uh, you mentioned Mark Little, and I want to I want to talk about his story in a second. Um, but first, I, I just sort of want to recap about how uh, the, the, these immigration courts themselves are this sort of like crazy environment in which to decide anything, right? Like there's these incredible there's a, there's an incredibly small number of judges and an incredibly huge number of cases, and a lot of times they're conducting the interviews over. Over Skype, it's like the judge is talking to the people over, or in large groups. Can right. You, can well, it's you talk both. That the, it could be televideo. Um, I don't think they use Skype, but they have their own internal system. But I think we said Skype, Skype on our show because people oh, really? understand what Skype is. <laughs> okay, got it, got it. But anyway, it's just like these televideo um, interviews, which are like which are like Skype. And uh, I mean, you know, I've seen a complaint by a respondent who is in the Stewart Detention Facility in southern Georgia, which unfortunately is where someone recently killed himself. Mm. And that person was complaining because he was part of what you're referring to as a mass removal hearing. And he says, you know, in his complaint to the Executive Office of Immigration Review, I had no idea what was going on. Like, I'm seeing this guy on a television screen and he says, I don't even watch television. Like, I don't really know what's going on here. And and then all of a sudden it's over and the guard's telling me I have to go. And I'm saying, hey, I never got to talk about my case to the judge. Huh. So it's literally you, you could be sitting in that if you're in this situation, you're sitting in the immigration detention center. And you say, OK, finally going to go before I judge and I'm going to get to say, hey, man, I was born in Baltimore and I just lost my paperwork or whatever or whatever the story is. Um, and then what you're ushered into a room where you're sitting there with with 30 other people and, and the judges says what over the televideo? And the judge says, you know, you're all here because and they'll say it in English and typically there'll be a Spanish translation. So um, that also could be a problem if your native language is neither English nor Spanish. Yeah, there's many other languages on Earth. <laughs> right. Um, and and so, you know, the the um, you know, the judge will quickly go through um, what the charges are. And then, you know, there, there's a number of different scenarios. One would be if it's an institutional hearing, in which case you actually would not be in an immigration detention facility, but you would still be in prison. And so the uh, immigration judge would say, OK, all of you guys are going to be deported immediately upon ending your prison sentence. Um, and does anybody object? No one objects. OK, you know, good luck. They say it that fast. Yeah. I mean, they, they go through the, they say they go they read the names and they say, are you here? Are you here? Are you here? And then they go through what the, you know, basic um, charges for everybody that you're deportable under this act because of the crime that you committed. And, you know, therefore, you know, I'm going to deport you all. And then if people if people want to, they can appeal afterwards and then they'll end up in when they're released from their criminal sentence in an immigration detention facility. And then they can have another shot at it by appealing and and going through the process there. But a lot of people, it sounds like, are just 
confused by this mass by this mass hearing and and right. uh, don't get their objection in because I don't know they. <laughs> They, they were distracted for a moment or so. It sounds like it happens very quickly. It, it happens pretty quickly, and they don't really know what's you know what what's what the stakes are um, because they they don't know in advance that they're even having that hearing. Okay. Wow. Um, and the other thing, I mean, they're supposed to, but you're just brought into a room like, hey, uh, before lunch today, you got to go do a thing. They take you in there. The that's judge, right. <laughs> like, that's like, right. Out of nowhere, the judge is like, "Do you object to me deporting you right now?" Okay, no, bye bye. That's right. And it's because they don't connect the earlier interview with that proceeding, because the ICE agent hasn't flagged, oh, well, this is part of your removal proceeding. And so then you're going to have this hearing and you can prepare your case. And like, they don't even get that kind of advance notice. Um, and like I said, like some people will try to wait it out. The other big problem, and this goes both to U.S. citizens and other people who have a legal right to remain in the country, you know, they're not lawyers. And so they might neither they might not know that they're a U.S. citizen. I mean, I've huh. encountered people. You know, the definition of U.S. citizen is a legal definition. Most countries in the world don't even have use solely, right? So if you're born in most countries in the world, that does not make you a citizen of that country. Hmm. And so if you're like 19, 20 years old, even if you're born in the United States. Um, and an immigration judge or an ICE agent tells you you're not a U.S. citizen, then you believe them. No, because because you might be culture. You, you you're sort of uh, you're born in the United States, but your sort of culture isn't uh, built on this idea of birthright citizenship. That that's exactly right. I mean, I'm thinking of the Dominican Republic, which doesn't have birthright citizenship. And if you know this one person I'm thinking of is born in Lawrence, Massachusetts. His name's Roberto Dominguez, and you can look up his case if you go to my website, stateswithoutnations.blogspot.com. And, uh, you know, even though he was born in Lawrence, Massachusetts, um, his parents were Dominican. And when he was 19 years old, he was, um, you know, in these removal proceedings in Batavia, New York. And um, the immigration judge said, you know, you're not a citizen. And I, I have the hearing recording. Roberto saying, I am a U.S. citizen. I'm pretty sure, you know, I grew up here. Everything I know is because I'm a U.S. citizen. And da, da, da. But he didn't say the magic words, I was born here. Ah. And so, you know, based on that, the immigration judge deported him and it took um, Roberto nine years to get a U.S. passport and come back. And and then at that point, the United States government decided to challenge the validity of his passport and remove it. And he just, you know, he had he got um, supported by the Cardozo um, Justice Clinic. And um, that recently was worked out. It took years. And he was a U.S. citizen. This uh, this happened to. A young man who who was in fact a U.S. citizen. Yeah, he was born in Lawrence, Massachusetts, and he had a birth certificate. So going back to your example, oh, you know, what if I have a problem, you know, finding my birth certificate? Well, the other problem is once you get your birth certificate, you have to prove it's yours. And so the government's case, as the um, Cardozo attorneys put it um, rather hilariously, is that there must have been like some doppelganger, Roberto Dominguez, that nobody had ever located. Yeah. <laughs> who grew, who had the same home address at the same time of birth, um, but was, you know, someone else. And that this Roberto Dominguez had stolen this guy's birth certificate. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, I, <laughs> it, you know, it sounds baffling until you remember how the lengths our, our last president had to go to, to, to prove that he was a U.S. citizen. Uh, that, it, you know, there's no end to how much people can question the, the documentation you present. But, uh, man, well... I'm here talking to Professor Jackie Stevens. We will be back in just a moment, so please stick around. 
a lot of times my instincts are, are wrong. They're mostly wrong, but they're not wrong in the sense that, like, I misread somebody. They're just extremely limited to my, you know, to my idea of who they are. That was Mark Marin. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm the host of NPR's Bullseye. I'm so excited to tell you about my new show, The Turnaround. Join me as I sit down with some of the best interviewers in the world to ask them about how and why they do what they do. We'll go deep. Some of the biggest names in media, everybody from Terry Gross to Jerry Springer to Combat Jack. That's all on The Turnaround, two episodes a week this summer. Subscribe now. Tell a friend. Welcome back to Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. I'm here talking to Professor Jackie Stevens, who researches deportation law enforcement at Northwestern University. So let's talk about Mark Little, because we talked about his case briefly on our show, but it was such a uh, man. I mean, as, as a case study of the problems in this system, I don't think you could get more stark. Could you sort of walk through what happened to him? Yeah. So um, Mark Little is somebody who grew up with a history of cognitive and psychological disabilities. And in, he'd you know been mostly in assisted living facilities. And the discipline, if there's an infraction there, is that you go to jail. So he was in um, a jail in North Carolina. That, um, that's a pretty intense assisted living facility. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and so he, he, he was in a, a, a jail for a short um, misdemeanor sentence. And while he was there, um, he was profiled as being Mexican. And an ICE agent from uh, the regional office came in and interviewed him and said, um, you know, were you born in Mexico? And Mark said no. And then she goes, well, we have down that you're Mexican and um, we're going to send you to Mexico. And so Mark initially signed off on that, saying that um, he thought it was going to be like a field trip, <laughs> like, wow. like you get to go to Mexico. Mm-hmm. And as soon as he got back to his cell um, – you know, he talked about it with the other inmates there, and they, they're like, dude, you don't speak Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so Mark was born in Rowan County, North Carolina, and he has no relatives in Mexico, and he speaks no Spanish. And so how was he profiled as Mexican? Was it literally just some some guard was like, ah, that guy's got black hair or what? Well, if you look at his um, inmate intake form from the Goldsboro um, County Jail, um, it's it's completely bizarre. It says that his country of origin is Mexico, that his um, race is Oriental. <laughs> and, um, and Orient. that, <laughs> right. that's, that's just, I, I mean, what, what decade were they from, you know? Right. Well, <laughs> good question. Um, and I think what happened is that when Mark was growing up, um, he was told, so Mark is adopted. And um, when he was growing up, his his adoptive family told him um, that his father was from the Caribbean. But Mark had this idea in his head that his father was from Mexico. Now, again, none of this matters because he was born in the United States, and this is in eight different places in his in the database associated with him that ICE had access to. That they said in the report later, his lawyers pointed out that there were eight separate places in his criminal record that said that he was born in the United States. Um, But in any case, Mark had in his idea he said that his father was from Mexico, so he said that when he was being interviewed at that time. And then they put down, the officers in uh, North Carolina, that he was Mexican. And so it was based on these people flagging him as Mexican that then ICE interviewed him. And even though ICE had no information that would indicate that Mark was born in Mexico, they filled out the form 
um, the, the ICE agent filled out the form saying that he was born in Mexico. Well, what a, what a crazy snowball. So he just said, he, he was just like, yeah, I think my father was born in Mexico. And then at the prison, they're like, okay, uh, he's Mexican. And then ICE sees Mex, they just see Mexican on a form. And they're like, oh, hey, maybe this guy's, maybe this guy's deportable. And right. then they come in and they go, oh, where were you born? And, and you know, we think you were born in Mexico. Right. That's exactly what happened. And um, that's exactly what happened. And Mark, you know, very quickly after he signed off on the initial interview, um, which is supposed to be witnessed by another officer and wasn't. And it's baffling that he didn't have a lawyer as well, by the way, a a sort of, you know, a man with with, uh, you know, cognitive challenges, like talking to a government official. I mean, it's stunning that that he doesn't have a lawyer in that in that case. Right. That's right. And that nobody he didn't he had no clue of what the consequences were that, you know, being he didn't know what deported meant. Um, so, you know, he, he thought it was a temporary visit to Mexico that he was agreeing to. Wow. And so what happened next? OK, so then he you know, immediately is trying to reverse this and um, nobody is listening to his statements. He gets picked up and taken to, uh, you know, nobody in the jail is listening to him. He gets picked up um, a couple weeks later and taken to um, Cary, North Carolina, which is an ICE subfield office. And um, it's one of these places that I was so surprised to encounter doing this research. Um, it's really, it's in the back of an office park. It doesn't have a flag. There's no sign. And, you know, it, it, I did a little research on this and it turns out that there's, you know, hundreds of places like this around the country that were built in the aftermath of 911. And um, they're kind of off the grid places that the government likes to have in case they you know, have someone they want to hold for a while and not have people know exactly what where they are. Hmm. And so anyway, Mark was taken there and they have these holding cells. And he did try to talk to the ICE officer there and tell him that he was a U.S. citizen and nobody did anything about it. And then he was taken from there to the ICE detention facility in Georgia, where he did finally manage to swear out a statement that he was a U.S. citizen. And and this is the part that's so interesting about his case. So this you know statement that he swore out was in the immigration court file that was before the immigration judge, William Cassidy. Now, William Cassidy has this national reputation for being one of the most, um, you know, biased and disagreeable immigration judges in the country. And um, nonetheless, he had this sworn statement saying that someone claimed he was a U.S. citizen. And he completely disregarded that and just deported Mark in one of these mass removal hearings. Um, Mark said that after the hearing, he told the guard, look, I'm a U.S. citizen. I want to talk to the immigration judge. And that he did have a conversation with Cassidy and that he told Cassidy, look, you know, my brothers are my two brothers are in the army. And in fact, one of them was adjacent to the Stewart facility in Fort Benning. I mean, they they literally share a boundary. And Um, and Mark didn't know that at the time, but that's where his brother was. <laughs> just like just like less than a mile away. That's right. That's right. Wow. And so, you know, Cassidy said, sorry, I have to go by the word of, a, you know, the sworn statement of an ICE agent. And so I'm deporting you. And, you know, Cassidy later said that that conversation never occurred. Um, but regardless, you know, that doesn't make Cassidy look any better because he should have had some conversation since there was a statement in the file by Mark saying he was a U.S. citizen and that he was born in Rowan. It says he was born in Rowan County, North Carolina. Wow. Yeah. At the very least, you have to give that if your whole job is to determine who is in the country legally and who is not. If someone has a sworn statement that says they're a U.S. citizen, they should probably get more credence than than a mass removal hearing. 
That, that's right. And, you know, the reason that in my research I focus on U.S. citizens isn't because I actually believe that they have more of a moral claim to be in this country than anybody else. And I'll just put that on the table. Sure. Um, you know, I, I wrote a book called States Without Nations, Citizenship for Mortals. And, you know, I'm very invested in the idea that the rule of law um, can only proceed if we don't have um, you know, if we don't have laws that discriminate on the basis of intergenerational affiliations, and that includes nationality. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, this is a really great example That's of a really how, interesting idea. So you can see from, you know, like everything from Ferguson to these kinds of cases that the places where the government is most likely to screw up is when individuals have these kinds of biases based on ideas about nationality or race um, or religion or other kinds of, you know, um, attachments that um, are based on ideas about intergenerational belonging. Um, so with that said, you know, the reason I focus on U.S. citizens is because they're kind of like the 900-pound gorilla in the mine. Right. Right. Like, so this is happening to U.S. citizens. Then we can imagine how we don't really have to imagine. But, you know, it it gives us a bit of an index of how difficult it is for many other people who have legal claims to remain in the United States because they're legal residents or because of, you know, they didn't commit the crime or there's a, a confusion of identity. So there's all sorts of other legal basis for people who are not citizens to remain in this country. And, the you know, the, the absence of any due process protections and the nature of the people who are making these decisions who are not just in a law enforcement agency, the Department of Justice, but themselves tend to come from backgrounds um, where they're ICE prosecutors, right? And so if you're up against that kind of system that's just completely um, all of the, the, the weight is toward pushing people out, it's, it's so hard to remain in the United States. Right. I mean, a, uh, a, a judge from the judicial system is ostensibly because they're sort of an independent, uh, you know, they're an independent branch of government. Uh, you know, the the prosecutors and the defendants come to them and, and uh, uh, ostensibly or, or for the most part, they're they're sort of neutral on that because they're like, look, I don't have a, a dog in this fight, really. You guys are, are your own, you know, you're your own separate entities and I'm going to make up my mind. And, uh, you know, I'm not really, you know, aligned with one side over the other because the judicial branch is totally separate from the branch of government that's that's bringing the case. But if you're literally working for the same branch of government, the same department as the, you know, the, I mean, the, right. the the goal of the of the Justice Department, uh, you know, is to uh, is to deport people. And so if the judge is part of that uh, department, uh, they're going to be inclined to come to that conclusion. It's it's uh, it's I mean, uh, conflict of interest is a legal term, but, you know, my naive understanding of it is it seems like that's what it seems like. Well, yes, of course. And, you know, so, you know, the way that the law works is that the Immigration and Nationality Act is the, you know, over... Um, arching uh, law that governs deportation proceedings, and it's enforceable by the Department of Homeland Security and also by the Department of Justice. And so the person who runs the Department of Justice, our Attorney General Jeff Sessions, right, Mm -hmm. is at the border saying, we're going to get rid of everybody, and in fact has um, radically ratcheted up the deportation proceedings against people who um, are immigrants um, in the border areas. Um, And these are people who are legal residents, they're not recent border crossers. And so if you're part of that, your boss, if you're part of the Executive Office of Immigration Review and part of the Immigration Courts, your boss is Jeff Sessions. Right. And your performance review is based on the number of people you deport. Um, I mean, you know, just the the caseload that you manage. Uh, It's not based on the quality of your adjudications. 
But I, but I want to make clear that that I mean we made our episode while Obama was president, and uh, you know this system was yep. uh, you know the, the, Jeff Sessions didn't come up with this. This has been going on you know the whole time Obama was president as well. I'm I'm smiling because you're absolutely right, and um, you know it's true that I mean I'm smiling because a lot of journalists now are calling and they're saying, oh my God, you know attorneys can't get back behind secondary and interview their clients in the airports, and of course that was exactly the same case as when Obama was the president, and so that you know there are certain certain things that are persistent, um, but that said, um, in his second term, um, the number of detentions did go down. And uh, under Obama, you know, from the period from 2009 to 2012. And um, and we're seeing really dramatic increases, even in some areas. I, I was just checking this even above um, when um, Obama was president in 2011 and 2012, which is to me really stunning and, and, a, and a major concern. So the, so now the, these numbers of the number of deportations, the number of detained people, these are all going up again. That That's correct. So what what happened to Mark Little? We, I, I want to finish his story. Oh sure, okay, right, great, okay. I, I mean, so, I, I think everyone is is, very, is you've got us on the edge of our seats here. With, yeah, okay. With, so uh, so Mark uh, Little um, goes to the immigration court and he's thinking he's thinking like, where's my lawyer, right? Mm-hmm. And so he's you know telling, this, and then he said he, he went back um, and he was talking to other you know guys in the um, facility, and they said. You know, it could take months, and he was telling me about this guy he met from Ethiopia who was there for four years. And, in the detention um, facility. In the, yeah, in the Stewart detention facility. Wow. And, and again, these are not people who, at this, in this context, are charged with a crime. Many of these people are actually pursuing asylum claims. And um, the, these, you know, are just being dragged out and dragged out and dragged out, including um, by Cassidy and other uh, you know, adjudicators there, Pelletier's a good example of this, um, who just cancel the hearings. And so people have an asylum claim, they go to court, and then um, Cassidy will just go, oh, your case has been adjourned until like next month. And they keep coming back and returning and returning. Um, it, it, you know, it's called abusive calendaring. And, the, I, you know, basically they're in um, indefinite detention. And so at some point they'll just give up and agree to be deported, even though, you know, it's back to very dangerous um, circumstances. So Mark is hearing these kinds of stories and he's thinking, I don't want to be here forever. And uh, he uh, agrees to be deported. Before that, he actually was given being given some um, medication for his diabetes and he OD'd and wow. ended up in a hospital as a suicide attempt. But they, you know, returned him and uh, and then deported him to uh, this uh, McAllen, Texas, which is on the border of uh, Reynosa, Mexico. And um, from there, he walked across the bridge into Reynosa. Under duress, I imagine. They were like, walk across the bridge, you're going to Mexico? Yeah. <laughs> that's right. That, that's um, how they deport you. They bring you to Texas and they say, walk across a bridge. That's that's it. Yeah, That's they, bananas. They... <laughs> I'm sorry. I mean, I never thought about how, you know, I, I, I always assume they put you on a plane or something. Uh, maybe they do some people. But so you just OK, literally, it's like you're walking the plank, but from the U.S. to Mexico. Yeah, that's that's right. And, wow. you know, he says that he didn't have his street clothes because they took him from the jail. And so he was actually walking across in the green um, you know, jail outfit that he was wearing um, when he was held in uh, in North Carolina. And and what does he have on his person? Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just want to paint a picture. This 
cognitively impaired American citizen is made to walk across a bridge to Mexico with no possessions, not speaking any Spanish, and now he's just in Mexico across the border with nothing he knows, no one, he has no resources. He's now homeless in Mexico. Correct. And, and, you know, and he's not, it's just like not anywhere in Mexico, but Reynosa is one of those, you know, very um, gang ridden, dangerous um, border towns. And um, so he ends up, um, I guess, like with a lot of other people, there's some, uh, you know, state and also um, church related facilities for people who are recently deported, and they allow you to stay there for three days. And so he stayed there. Um, and then he went to a kind of informal refugee camp that this guy who um, was from, I guess, uh, I think he's from Guatemala um, and lived in the United States for a few decades, had a family and everything. Um, this guy got deported to Mexico and set up this informal camp um, with the help of the Reynosa local government. And um, and so it's supported by Christian charities. And uh, so Mark stayed there for a while. And this this is a camp supporting people who are supporting the flow of people who are being deported That's across right. this bridge by the yeah, US. Yeah, so it's government. got like a it's got a little graphic out I I visited and there's a little, you know, hand-painted graphic outside with people, you know, with the US flag on their back walking toward the Mex- Mexican flag. Wow. So so this is and this is almost a I can imagine if you're in if you're in this town in Mexico, this is almost like a uh, uh, it's it's almost like a refugee issue. It's like yeah. you just got you've just hey, as long as I live here, there's going to be X number of people wandering across this bridge every day with nothing and no money and nothing to do. And like now we have to have to deal with them in some way. And so also some of them are American citizens and speak no Spanish. That's right. That's right. That's right. And so right. Wow. I mean, the, the guy who runs the place was telling me that he serves you know about 400 meals a day wow. um, to the people who cross. And so, you know, Mark was there for a bit and then he tried to return to the United States and they, he just walked back across the, the bridge. <laughs> I would too. I would be like, hey, let me back in. Right. And uh, they said, no, you know, it says here that you're deported. <laughs> and uh, and so he left and then, you know, he was talking to the people in the camp and I met people who, who you know, had spent time with Mark during this this period and uh, and they said like dude like you know you're a US citizen like you should go home <laughs> and and so then he tried again and the second time he tried um they actually locked him up for a while and um they threatened him with criminal proceedings there's actually a law uh that that is false personation of a US citizen wow and so they threatened him with criminal action that he would go into prison in the United States if he tried again and so um, at that point, uh, he was talking to some missionaries and they said, you know, you should go to the U.S. consulate in Mexico City. And so he, you know, got some money from a church to go to Mexico City and he got to Mexico City. Well, Mexico City is a pretty big place. <laughs> and so he couldn't find the consular office there. And um, he ended up being deported from Mexico City to Honduras. Wait, 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 wait. Who deported him to Honduras? Mexico. So, you know, Mexico. Because <laughs> he wasn't Mexican. Yeah, of course. He's like, what is this guy doing? This guy's an illegal immigrant in Mexico, according right. to, or as far as they know. I mean, you know. Yeah, that's crazy. He, yeah, because he's not he's not Mexican. And he, so, why, so he's stateless at this point. Yeah, he's a man without a country. Why do they deport him to Honduras as opposed to anywhere else? 
He was with another guy who had been deported from the United States who was Honduran. And so uh, they both got put on a bus and sent to Honduras. And Mark was able to hang out with this guy for a little bit near the area of San Pedro Sula, um, which is in Honduras. And he went to the immigration office for Honduras. And um, he <laughs> so at this point, he was afraid of saying he was a U.S. citizen. So he um, he said he was from Cuba and that he wanted to be sent to Cuba. And I asked him, why did you say Cuba? And he said that he'd heard that there were a lot of bilinguals in Cuba. Wow. And I actually met with the guy who interviewed Mark in, in San Pedro Sula, and he confirmed the story and actually gave me the paperwork that Mark filled out saying that he was, you know, they helped him fill out that said he was from Cuba. And I asked Mark, I said, do you know where Cuba is? And he said, no. I said, do you know it's an island? He said, no. <laughs> so, <laughs> Um, so he just heard Cuba that you know he wanted to be with people who spoke English and he couldn't go back to the United States. So he just said Cuba. So uh, the immigration authorities in uh, San Pedro Sula called, you know, got in touch with the Cuban consular authorities there and they said, no, we have no record of this guy. Um, yeah. And so then they shipped him to the immigration office for Honduras in Tegucigalpa um, and they said, uh, you know, no – which is the capital. And um, and there, this is the part that's really crazy. Um, Mark told me when I first interviewed him in June 2009, which is shortly after he returned, that he met another U.S. citizen in this um, immigration office. And um, sure enough, um, the newspapers a few months later said that there was this woman who, um, Diana Williams, who had been deported to Honduras <laughs> Huh. And um, Mark had met her there, and uh, he, you know, she was able to persuade the U.S. consular officers to um, issue the paperwork to send her back to the United States. And he told me that when they said goodbye, that she said, you know, if you need help, you know, I'll, I'll try to, you know, marry you and bring you back. I don't know if that, you know, to the extent that which that really happened, but wow. they definitely met. And she definitely was able to get back to the United States. But then he got sent to some kind of jail in Honduras and said that the local, like basically the local gangsters in that jail who a lot of people who are deported from the United States to Honduras and other countries in Latin America do go straight to jail because the government is concerned about you know, gang activity and so forth. And mm. even though they may have served their prison terms in the United States, they just end up there as a way of, you know, kind of a semi-legal or perhaps illegal, um, you know, criminal control. And so Mark was in that kind of facility and um, said that the gangsters there were helping him out and they got a bed for him and, and so forth. And uh, and then some local television crew got word that there was a U.S. citizen who was there and did a story about it. And shortly after that story, Mark said that the Guatemalan authorities um, had him taken – sorry, the Honduran authorities had him taken to Guatemala. <laughs> huh. Why Guatemala? Just outside of Hon – I don't know. They said, like, get him out of Honduras because there was, there was too much attention to it. And they don't want – I mean, I understand if, if you now come to believe that you have – there's a U.S. citizen in one of your jails who shouldn't be there that we're like, oh, my – this is going to be diplomatically difficult, but – that's also the wrong reaction. They should send him to the United States. Right. <laughs> Why? Right. And there's something, you know, honestly, like, I'm not sure to the extent to which the United States at that point really did not know that Mark was a U.S. citizen. And, you know, I've, I've done some FOIA litigation to get all of those files, but they've definitely withheld a lot of the documents from the Honduran end. And so it, it's possible that the United States at that point had 
in the Honduran office put together that he was a U.S. citizen. Uh, I'm not sure what happened. But in any case, he ends up in Guatemala City, and he does make his way at that point to the consular office in Guatemala City. And I met with the person who interviewed him there, the consular officer, uh, Maria Alvarado, and she told me that his case was an easy one. That within six hours of him showing up, they were able to um, confirm his details and start the paperwork for a temporary passport, which was good for a year. And that ultimately was used for him to travel back from Guatemala City to um, the United States. Now, that doesn't, doesn't you think it would end there? <laughs> so how, wait, wait, so it was just all which all she had to do was what? Do a Google search, look up his birth certificate somewhere, whatever it was, and she's like, "Oh yeah, this guy's—he's well, a U.S. citizen." And actually, what she did is because his brothers were in the military, they got in touch with his brother, and then he was able to get his birth certificate to them, and also the family got in touch with um, a wonderful immigration attorney who helped them pro bono. His name's Neil Rambana, and he's based in Florida. And so, you know, he helped kind of smooth everything out um, and explain, you know, what had happened and so forth and, you know, kind of help out with the documentation, um, which was basically just his U.S. birth certificate um, and the, you know, the records of adoption. And so they got those to the officer. And because there'd been that paperwork, they were able to, you know, kind of verify his identity and procure the U.S. passport. I, I mean, I can't imagine. I imagine his family must have been worried. <laughs> yeah, because- no, they were really worried. They had no idea what had happened to him and um they were trying to they tr- they called the jail and nobody told him them um his mother Jeannie Little um that he was deported or he was in ice custody they had no idea that any of this had happened until wow. the until um Maria Alvarado called so literally from everything all the entire this story was about you told four us. months this was about four months up, so this was in uh, April of uh, 2009. So he was ordered that the hearing before Cassidy was December 8th of 2008. And then it was, you know, April 23rd that he returned to the United States. And they were in, I think it was, you know, a few days before that, that um, the family was in touch with Maria Alvarado. So the entire story you just told from the, uh, you know, the ICE agent coming to the jail uh, his parents, his family knew none of it. They didn't even know he was in the detention center or anything like that. And then four months later, they get a call from Latin America saying, hey, your son's been to Honduras. He's been to Guatemala. He's been That's right. he, he's been on buses. He's he's been hanging out with a gang in, in a prison it, like that. That's what, what such insanity. So he right. so he goes back. So he's finally back in the United States now. Well, yeah. And you think it's a, so he he. Um, was going to meet his brother was at a military base in Tennessee. And so he was en route there via Atlanta. And when he got off the plane in Atlanta, he was just going through customs like everybody else. And he had his U.S. passport. But when he went through the, you know, the little border um, area, he shows the passport and he gets flagged as someone who'd been deported. And so they locked him up in the Atlanta airport. Are you kidding me? (laughs) No, they they locked him up in the Atlanta airport and uh, an ICE uh, uh, officer there issued um, an expedited removal order. So one of the you know quirks in deportation law is that once you've been deported and you are um, encountered again at the border, you do not have a, law, a, a right to go before an immigration judge. Now, you're supposed to, if you, the, the regulation says that if you assert U.S. citizenship, you have a right to go before an immigration judge. But who's going to enforce that right if the law also gives a prerogative 
to the Border Patrol and ICE agents to just issue these expedited removal orders based on claims that you're an alien, right? So the thought is like, oh, somebody already said you're an alien. You don't have another right to, you know, try again and prove you're a U.S. citizen. But but he's carrying a U.S. passport. Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm getting, point I'm getting a taken. Upset. <laughs> right. Right. And and so, you know, having a U.S. passport you know, should be um, sufficient to prove your U.S. citizenship. But it actually at this point is not. Wow. And and so even though he had that in his possession, um, because they had in his database that, that in their database that he'd been deported, um, that was actually evidence of a crime of fraudulently obtaining a U.S. passport. Oh. So what happened? So uh, he gets in touch with um, his family and says, you know, I'm not going to be in Tennessee because I'm locked up in Atlanta. And so they're really upset. And so they, you know, follow up with Neil Rabana. And this is a part that to me, I mean, there's a whole bunch of points at the story that are very upsetting. But to me, what's really upsetting is that at this point, he has a lawyer. And this is a very good lawyer and a very persistent lawyer. And the lawyer calls the ICE desk officer in Atlanta and says, yo, you know what? You have a U.S. citizen. This guy just got his U.S. passport in Guatemala City. You have in your database all of the underlying documents that went into producing this U.S. passport. You can verify them, right? So this whole claim that there's something fraudulent about the passport is something that the law enforcement officers immediately in real time could have checked up on. Yeah. And and so, you know, Rambana is calling and he's calling and he's calling. Nobody calls him back. And the paperwork shows that they're ready to turn Mark around. So the the only thing as far as, you know, not just me, but the um, other people I've spoken with in ICE um, can see that turned this around um, was that it just by coincidence had happened that I was doing reporting on another story. And I was working with a ICE public affairs officer uh, named Barbara Gonzalez. And I'd, you know, kind of been on her case in the past because ICE Public Affairs in that time frame um, was repeatedly saying that ICE never detains U.S. citizens. ICE never deports U.S. citizens. And I'm saying, look, you know, you have these cases that you know about where ICE has, in fact, detained and deported U.S. citizens. This is just Orwellian. And, And I said, you know, your ICE agents and your public affairs office is lying about this. And so she was very upset at, at my, you know, accusing them of lying. And she said, if you ever encounter a case like this, you just let me know. And to her credit, um, within hours of my flagging Mark Little's case and sharing with her um, his, you know, what's so-called alien number, um, you know, which was one thing that Mark was really bugged about. He kept calling it his alias number. And he's like, Jackie, why do I have an alias number? Yeah. Anyway, so so uh, you know, she followed up on it, and they you know did a review, and they ultimately released him within 24 hours instead of deporting him back to Mexico, which she said to me they were preparing to do had she not intervened. Uh, but th- this is the example of uh, so sh- so they finally let him go because of it, you know the contacting the PR person and and there's going to be bad press and it, it's public facing it's that sort right. of you know it's the, it's when the news channel comes around with the cameras and and bullies the uh you know the local bureaucracy or it's when uh 
you know, someone who's verified on Twitter tweets at the airline. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> you know right. I mean? and, and then that's what's so concerning because the lawyer was doing everything legally correct, right? Like he was doing right. what he should have done. Mark had a good advocate um, who was following the law. And so it's very concerning when you see a case like this where ICE is just disregarding that and only responding when they fear that that kind of, um, you know, misconduct is going to be exposed. Wow. I mean, that, yeah, that whole story is so upset. I mean, you could tell I got a little upset during it. it. It's because it's I mean, what happened to him is a true is a true nightmare. I mean, it's a a horror movie isn't quite the right word. It, it's one of those things like oh, you if you imagine it happened to yourself, it, it imagine it sounds like a piece of fiction. I mean, the word the word Kafka S came to my mind because it, it you know reminded me of any of any number of mm-hmm. stories of of you know someone being sort of trapped in a bureaucracy. You know, it's that it's that primal fear of. Uh, the primal fear of, you know, being sent to the mental hospital when you're sane and you're shaking the people going like, no, no, I'm I'm you know, and they're like, yeah, right. That's what a crazy person would say. It's like it's that sort of it's it's that sort of like terror of of that deep of a miscarriage of justice. But it it actually happened and it's presumably happening to other people. Yeah, it, it, it absolutely is. And, you know, even though one of the reasons that Mark's case is so you know, mesmerizing in a way is because he was born in the United States and he really did just seem to bumble into this. Um, it's also, right. you know, and, and I should also, um, you know, point out in response to your comment about the Kafka-esque nature of these proceedings that, that I did a, a keyword search and the word Kafka does actually appear in a disproportionate number of these U.S. citizen cases. Um, <laughs> so um, it, 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 you're not off when, when you have that in mind. And, and what the what the federal courts are thinking when they're looking at these um, cases is not just these individual level scroops, but there's a, a case just a few years ago um, when the Ninth Circuit Court clarified that the Department of Homeland Security in deporting people who had claims of U.S. citizenship had been in relying on a completely invented article in the Mexican Constitution. How do you mean? DHS was citing a decision from the Board of Immigration Appeals that said, oh, like, according to this provision of the Mexican Constitution, these are our rules for legitimacy. And based on these rules for legitimacy, so and so and so and so, like, none of these cases can claim U.S. citizenship, right? And okay. um, and it turned out that there was no article in the Mexican Constitution. And for 35 years, people had been deported on the basis of this invented article in the Mexican Constitution. And the Mexican Constitution is publicly right. available. You could go. That's right. That's you right. You could just go that's read a, it. That's right. And then you know, point taken. And that's also you know that part is on the attorneys who are defending people and never bothered to look up the Mexican Constitution. So, so, yeah. uh, the, I mean, God, this whole this whole story is so stunning because we have a. We have a sort of parallel justice system that's a that's you know literally a, a justice system in name only, where with judges and courts that that are not part of the ju- judicial system, but are in fact administered by the executive branch. Uh, that is totally overworked. You've got these crazy mass deportations with uh, video, you know, where people are being deported over uh, uh, you know video uh, or televideo in these large groups. Um, you've got a system that'll, you know, deport someone like Mark Little. U.S. citizens are being deported and not just U.S. citizens, but legal residents, other people who have who have a right to be in the country legally. The agents and judges in charge of the system, when presented with clear evidence that they've made an error, 
ignore it and continue to uh, deport these folks when <laughs> those people's lawyers try to raise <laughs> that you know, appeal and say this has happened they they get no uh, they get no traction this is uh, it's it's stunning that this is that this is the uh, that this is the system we have and i don't want to get into how we got there because i, I think you talked about how uh you, you know there was such and such a decision the, by the justice department in the 50s to create the system yada yada how how do we resolve that i mean <laughs> you know like uh, what what is the i'm not asking what's the solution obviously there is no solution what is your what is your your hope for the future in in changing this because it's clearly that it's it's not just oh we got to change this or that policy we've got a we have an entire system that's been built up over decades that is that is doing this to people that that compri- it's got to be tens of thousands of people who are working within this system that that cause it to be this way so so what what do we what steps do we take? What is your hope for the future? Right. Okay, so before going to the hopes for the future, we need to dwell for a few <laughs> minutes on concerns about the present. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I have many. So, concerns so about let the me. Present. But like one concern that people should have is that. Um, so one question that could come up is, you know, even if you have a the agency that's within the Department of Justice, um, you still could expect, you know, better. Um, you know, quality of decisions and more attention to due process than what we see in the Executive Office of Immigration Review. One of the, um, you know, means of redressing problems in the system has been through people being able to file misconduct complaints against the immigration judges. Uh, And yet that has not proven to be any help at all. And the reason I'm flagging this is that not only was that system, um, you know, basically a sham and the person who was running it, Mary Beth Keller, um, you know, classifying as um, you know, c- complaints that as failing to state a cl- claim and, and so forth and misclassifying um, complaints that were had actual underlying um, problems that were very severe, including, you know, accusations of immigration judges receiving kickbacks, right, that were classified as failure to state a claim. But people who were found to be repeat offenders um, didn't have any kind of follow-up in terms of discipline. And so, you know, I've been working with a couple of colleagues, um, Heather Schoenfeld, who's a professor at Northwestern and a graduate student who's about to start at George Washington, Elizabeth Meehan. And we found that 6% of the um, immigration judges were responsible for over 40% of the misconduct violations and that none of them experienced any disciplinary results. Like the people who had the, who were the you know, worst offenders didn't have any kind of disciplinary results. Okay, so why am I going into all this wonky detail about this? The person who ran that in those in, in misconduct investigations was recently under the Obama administration appointed to be the chief immigration judge. Hmm. And so, you know, rather than putting people in office of integrity who are going to, you know, work on behalf of respondents and try to, you know, improve things, we, we actually are elevating the officials who are responsible for the worst misconduct. Wow. So that's the present. <laughs> okay. um, you know, going forward, I think that, you know, this country is very divided about our immigration and our deportation policy. And so, you know, there, there's a, a slight majority um, that favors the kind of policies that um, that Trump has. And there's a strong plurality that 
opposes them. And then even, you know, if you turn the questions around a little bit, um, you can find, you know, over 60% of the people who favor a path to citizenship for people who are in this country without documentation. So, you know, the, the numbers are a bit confusing. And there's, you know, it's very, the country, as you know, is very polarized on this question. Um, I think we need to have, a, the first thing I think we need is a lot more public education and discussion about these kinds of details about deportation and the nature of the detention system. And you know, we're not going going into any of the details about the interlocking for-profit prison industry that is behind all of the legislation that has mandatory detention. And Oh, my God. That sounds like a whole other episode of this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, yes, I mean, for people who have seen our episode on private prisons, I understand that private the private prison industry is a huge player in these detention centers. Right. Well, it's not just a player in the detention centers, but it was the main player in getting a piece of uh, – in getting a law passed in 2010 that requires that no fewer than 34,000 people on average be housed under immigration laws every night. So, <laughs> Really? Yeah. That's a that's a federal law. And so in order to, you know, keep up with that mandatory minimum, ICE is incentivized to arrest people regardless of any kind of underlying um, criminal complaints. And and actually what, what I've noticed in recent months since the, since uh, Trump has uh, been in power is that the number uh, I, I did a little check on some areas and and I found out that, you know, Houston has a, a 50 percent increase over the same time frame last year in the number of people who are who are having immigration hearings who are detained in Houston. So there's a 50% increase over 2016. But there's actually a 21% decrease in the number of people who are in detention because of criminal arrests. Huh. And so the entire, you know, the, the, the number of people who are being held has um, increased solely because of um, people who are being accused of um, only having in immigration infractions and not having any kind of criminal history. So I think that that's very much a, in contrast with the administration, or at least the current administration's claims in the campaign that they were going to uh, uh, deport criminals first, and that it was that it was mostly about criminals. Because you're saying even as the number of total detainees has gone up, the number of them that are criminals has gone way down. At least in for for, for the Houston, which has a you know, a large number of um, detainees. So, you know, through May of 2017, they've had 7,380 detained cases compared with 8,961 detained cases for all of 2016. But again, I mean, that's striking. But also the law that you talked about in 2010, which mandates that 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 uh, there be a certain number of detainees in these prisons was passed under the Obama administration. That's correct. And signed under Obama. That's right. That's right. Oba- Barack Obama signed. Of course, it. yeah. Okay. So <laughs> just want to yeah, make yeah, sure yeah, we're yeah. all no, on the I mean, same page. A, I think that that's why I'm saying that you know th- that one of the things that we really need is a lot more education about what's right. going on with our deportation system and our immigration law, and we also need a lot more research on you know whether or not it is a bad thing to have people um, who are here without legal documentation, and you know as part of a bigger conversation about free movement. And um, I think that, you know, in this country, we're, we're really, unfortunately, quite far from that. Um, but we need to be educating ourselves a lot more about the economic policies associated with or the economic consequences associated with free movement. Um, you know, the, we have some examples with the European Union in particular. And I know that that's a, a bit of a um, confounding example. Bit of a sticky point. wicket. It, it is. But, um, you know, the the, uh, the the data show that um, within the European Union, 
um, after there was that consolidation, that instead of there being a flood of people from the poorer countries to the more wealthy ones, there was actually a reverse migration. And that as you had um, Portugal and Greece and so forth as part of this unified market, um, the people who were from those countries were actually returning back because they didn't have to worry about you know being able to come and go as they like. And also because um, being part of a unified market was very good for direct invest for foreign direct investment. And that helped build mm. up the infrastructures of the poorer regions. And so, you know, something that had been on the table actually under the administration of George Bush um, was having a unified market with Mexico, Canada, and the United States. And, you know, if you look at the um, headlines on um, September 11th, um, this is like the paper headlines before the planes hit, um, it was about meetings with Vicente Fox um, to talk about having some kind of guest worker programs and, you know, steps on the way to having more unification among Mexico and Canada right. and the United States. So I think that that's, you know, the, 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 the kind of policy future to um, have on the horizon. And, you know, in the short term, um, I, I think there are a couple of really obvious steps that we need to um, pursue. And one is to have everybody who's attained, detained um, have the right to an assigned a, attorney. And Yes, at a minimum. <laughs> yeah, you know, at, at the paid for by the government if the individual can't afford it. And if we can't afford as a country to provide those kinds of protections, then we cannot afford to deport people and um, or we cannot afford to detain people. And there are alternatives to detention to ensure that people will show up for their hearings. And, you know, among those would be ankle bracelets, bond um, and so forth. And so and they don't have those options currently. right? Isn't, I believe there's a Supreme Court case or the Supreme Court has agreed to hear a case in the fall about whether because currently people who are detained in these immigration detention centers, they don't have the right to, you know, as you would in a criminal trial, like uh, uh, pay bond and then, you know, be able to go home to your family for a few weeks while you await trial. They have to sit there. And the Supreme Court is hearing a case That's on correct. that. Yeah. In the, right. I mean, there's different policies for different kinds of um, people who are seeking seeking um, uh, to ha- to be legalized. And so for people who have uh, who are accused of having a criminal conviction, you do not have a right to a, a bond hearing except in the Ninth Circuit, which is um, you know, awarded that. Um, and so the Supreme Court's going to be hearing these cases because there's some disparity among the um, different circuits about how to deal with bond. Um, the other big you know, category of problems that we haven't talked about are people who are seeking asylum. And under mm. the law, um, they don't actually even have a right to a bond hearing in an immigration court, regardless of any um, absence of a criminal record. And so what I've been seeing, I was in um, the Aurora detention facility a few months ago until they threw me out when they found out I was, quote, with the media. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I was uh, you know, observed a hearing with um, 17 people who were seeking asylum from Haiti, and they'd all filed the proper paperwork and had petitioned for parole from the Department of Homeland Security, which is responsible for that. And um, they hadn't received any responses to their petitions. And so they're in the immigration court saying, hey, judge, can I have a bond hearing? And the immigration judge is saying, sorry, I don't have any jurisdiction over your bond. Um, and so that was huh. and then the other problem that I observed there is that not only was he not hearing their requests for bond, but he wasn't giving many of them new dates for their immigration hearings. And these are people who had been held already in March for five to seven months. And they wow. weren't even being able to get a date for when their actual hearing would be. 
And these are asylum seekers. These are not criminals. No. These are people who are saying, I, I need protection. Um, and uh, at the very least, these are people who should be hu- treated humanely. But they're being held in, in what amounts to a they're prison. They're being held in a prison in Aurora, um, Colorado. And this is actually the um, that, that particular facility run by GEO is um, being um, sued uh, for violating laws against um, the Trafficking Victims Protection Act and unjust enrichment and Colorado state minimum wage for exploiting people who are in their detention. And that facility also has seen a very sharp uptick in the number of people that have been detained under the Trump administration in contrast um, with 2016. And yeah, these people that whose hearings that I observed um, are um, had made their way through the Mexican border and then been sent from the Mexican border into the interior of Colorado, where they're just stuck in the middle of nowhere in this industrial park, um, waiting for you know a, a, a hearing. Wow, I, I mean, I, I keep trying to, I keep trying to sort of uh, uh, wrap us up and move us towards an ending, and then you keep saying new things that are happening. Sorry in, about that. that. Are, are stunning to me. Uh, I, I, and, yeah, no, I'm sorry about that. Yeah, so, but again, I think um, that. <laughs> no, no, no. It's it's wonderful. I mean, it's it's uh, that, that's the whole point is that you were saying is that is that uh, we need more public awareness that that these things are happening. I mean, there's, you know, people have this sort of base understanding of the criminal justice justice system, you know, based on, you know, everyone's seen law and order or, you know, people I think are getting more awareness of the, uh, you know, injustices that happen in the criminal justice system, you know, just from sort of, you know, pop, you know, uh, documentaries, uh, uh, you, you know, the sort of Netflix documentaries about uh, or podcasts about, you know, you know, various miscarriages of justice. But but this is a, a system that's affecting so many people that that most people not only are they not aware of it. They have never had a thought for a moment that such a system exists. You know, it's it, they don't even know what they don't know. Right. About. And, and that's not an accident. I mean, that's the other problem is that, you know, there's a regulation that says that immigration court hearings shall be open to the public. And so you'd think, oh, like if I'm in the public, I get to go and watch what happens. Um, by the way, right. I would encourage people who are interested in this topic and want to see firsthand what's going on to go to the Executive Office of Immigration Review website and look up where their local courts are. And see if they can just, you know, show up and observe hearings and especially to try to attend um, hearings for people who are detained. And um, hmm. the dockets are supposed to be posted. They're not always. I mentioned that because they're not always posted. But they, um, the people who try to observe should ask to see the docket and see if they can. You know, it's not they, they have detained hearings every day in these courts and um, to, to go and see if they can observe those hearings. And I think it would you know, be a real eye opener um, to spend a morning you know, trying trying to do that. The reason I mentioned that this is that, um, that the courts, are, the reason that people don't know about this is that even though by law they're supposed to be open to the public, um, you know, some of the worst immigration judges just arbitrarily close them. And uh, I just want to huh. mention that I actually have a lawsuit against this guy, Cassidy, um, because after Mark got back and we tried to observe his hearings, he, he would just like walk out of the courtroom <laughs> um, or he would cancel the hearings. And one um, on one occasion when I waited him out, uh, he ordered the guards not just to like I, I left the courtroom when he told me to leave. But then they, he told the guards to remove me from the building. And I found out later that they were trying to ban me. And the wow. only reason they weren't able to ban me was that the Homeland Security said, look, if you want to ban someone, you can't just like pick on a person who's critical of you. You have to have a policy for banning people. And then at that point, <laughs> they dropped the whole thing. 
Um, but the 11th Circuit right now is, you know, hearing my civil rights lawsuit um, against Judge Cassidy. And um, and again, I say that in quotation marks. Um, I mean, he's about as much of a judge as Judge Judy is. And, uh, and and so I have a lawsuit against them. And, you know, we'll see if they um, allow it to go forward. The district court threw it out and said that he had absolute judicial immunity. And, you know, it, that we believe was based on intuitions that, you know, follow from what people associate with the title judge and without recognizing the actual functions of the immigration courts. Right, because it's that word judge carries weight, but he's but this is not part of the judicial right. branch. And that's exactly what the um, what the oral argument was about on Tuesday. Uh, man. Well, thank you so much for 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 coming on the show. It's so I mean this this topic is so it's so vast what you know what what's happening but it, it it's like uh it's so vital to know for us to know that it is happening and and uh uh yeah i'm sort of uh, <laughs> uh you know I, honestly i thought i knew i thought i knew this topic before coming into this interview you know we did an episode of television about it and and i find myself Stunned by the enormity of it, and it's honestly going to take me a couple of days to sort of grapple with with what what I do next with it. But I, uh, uh, yeah, I mean the the first step is is knowing that these things are happening. So I, I really appreciate you coming on to tell us. Well, about and I that. really appreciate you having me and your you know persistent interest in this topic. I think it's in, it's very important and helpful. Well, thank you once again for coming on the show, Jackie. I know it ended in kind of a dark, complicated place, but guess what? We live in a dark and complicated world. And that is it for Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast this week. That's the message I'm leaving you with. You're going to have to deal with it. We will be back in two weeks, so please tune in then. Our producer is Sharon Morris, and if you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend about our podcast and subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever your favorite podcast app may be. And don't forget to leave us a rating or comment wherever you subscribe. Again, Adam Ruins Everything, the TV show, is coming back at you with all new episodes starting July 11th at 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central on True TV. And you can catch clips and full episodes at truetv.com slash Everything. And if you've got apps, do you use apps? Well, then you can watch full episodes using the Watch True TV app. And I hope you do. Until then, we'll see you in two weeks. Bye-bye. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.